Today's guest on the podcast is writer and screen director Stephen Shabosky. So I am super honored, you guys, to have some time with Stephen. He is probably best known for his book, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which many of us grew up to. And I know I'm kind of on the cusp, so I didn't really grow up to it. I'm a little bit older. But he also directed that movie. And many of you have probably seen the recent movie Wonder with Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson. And he was the director for that fantastic, fantastic movie. So we talk about in the episode how I met Stephen when um, I was in Boston about, I guess, a month ago. And it just kind of spiraled out of control from there. And here he is on the podcast. So I'm grateful, grateful for his time, his energy. And I learned a lot from spending some time with him and also going to his book reading in Boston, so or his book launch. And I hope you all enjoy it. It's a quite an interesting opportunity and unique opportunity to speak with Stephen and especially about his new book, Imaginary Friend. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 Hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Super, super, super excited about the guest today. Stephen Chabosky's here. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So funny story. We met in Boston. What has it been like a month? Month ago, I guess. <laughs> I think I think it was. I think it might have been like three weeks ago, oh, like today. Oh my gosh! That's when all. I accosted yeah. you in Brookline Booksmith and was like, "Hey, <laughs> I know you." Yeah. It- <laughs> Yeah, you're not, you're not, a, a cost is way too harsh a verb. You were just very sweet and you were like, hi, I love your book, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Could you sign this? And I was, of course, I was so moved and I'm so, uh, I'm so glad that you introduced, you know, cause I just went there to sign some books and it wasn't even a proper <laughs> signing and you just said, hi, I said, oh, wow, that's wonderful. It was so, so funny. You, and you got imaginary friends. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you. Yeah. Well, I was just standing there actually, so, cause I'm having my book signing there next month and my publicist and I were just, you know, checking it out seeing wh- where the things are going to go. And you walk in and I was like, Hey, Eden, I think that's Stephen Jaboski. She's like, no. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And so I'll have to admit, I Googled you real quick to make sure. Before I make sure you. it was me, yes. Sure. And I was like, yeah, that's yeah. totally him. I'm going to say hey. So. Well, I, I'm glad that my name is not John Smith because then forget it. It's <laughs> taking you years. You know, it, yeah. My my crazy last name. My grandmother she changed the spelling of everything. And I, you know, when I was a younger person, I was like, oh, this last name is crazy. Now in the age of Google, it's fantastic. I know. And you I know, because there's like five. Right. Of us in the world. Am I even saying it right? Chibosky. Yeah, more or less. How do you say Listen, it? if people say Chabosky, I'm cool with that. I'm also cool with Shabosky. Oh, Shab- Either is what, fine. What do you say? Because that's what's important. Shabosky. I usually say Shabosky, but the thing is, um, that's just because, you know, my grandmother, she changed the spelling, and that's just how she said it. You know, it should be Chabosky because it's a CHB. Right. So, yeah, we're missing vowels. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole family thing. Well, I'm from Georgia, so I can just, you know, 
butcher the English language and it's fine. Yeah, of course. That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. Shabazz. Yeah, actually, Christy Lakin, the, the lady that read the Imaginary Print audiobook, she is from Georgia. Oh, really? Wait, what's her name? Christine Lakin. I was going to ask you if you read your own book because that was actually going to be one of my questions because this is a lengthy book. And I just got off recording mine and thought, I literally thought of you on day three of my 250-page book. I thought, I wonder if he did the yeah. audio book. <laughs> no, I did not. I, you know, I, I did a chapter as kind of a, something of an audition. And I told Hachette Audio and I told, you know, my wife and, and, and my assistant, uh, you know, kind of partner, Kelsey, she's amazing. Um, I told all these people, like, look, just just level with me. If you think it's good, great. If not. You know, and just compared to Christine Lakin, I, you know, I'm fine, but she's a professional. But what I ended up doing was I directed the audiobook, which was a great fun. Oh, that's interesting. So you it. sat there while she read. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, like, it was like directing a movie just with a lot less pressure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a great segue, directing movies, because you do lots of things. You do lots and lots of things. And I loved the story you told at your book signing in boston about how you got into screenwriting and i thought it was so interesting yeah. because i have a similar story about how something someone told me impacted me but can you tell the audience a little bit about how you even found oh, screenwriting yeah yeah happily so i was 12 years old so i really only wanted to be two things in my life i wanted to be a baseball player when i was a little little kid and i was just too short too slow wasn't going to happen um the only other thing was uh writer and so I went, when I was 12 years old, I went to my dad, who's probably the biggest reader I knew, and said, hey, dad, I want to be a writer. I meant to say novelist. I said writer. Uh, and he said, well, great writers are great readers. And then he kind of like left the room to like go smoke a cigarette and watch the hockey game. And what he was trying to tell me was, hey, Steve, you should read more books, and which was very good advice. But I didn't take it that way. I took it this very strange way. I'm 12, and I go, okay. He just left the room. He's my hero. And, and when you're 12, you think that everything your dad tells you is true. Right. So I was like, okay, he knows I'm not a great reader because I'm a pretty slow reader. I'm, I was never diagnosed as, as being somewhere on the dyslexic scale, but I, I'm probably somewhere in that list. And so I was a very slow reader. So I said, well, he knows I'm not a great reader, but I guess, well, I guess I watch movies. I guess I read movies. All right, I guess I'll write movies then. <laughs> it was actually a practical decision by a 12-year-old who completely misunderstood the advice his father was giving him about wh what to do. And, um, and kind of the rest for me, at least is history, because I, all of my training is in movies, all of it. You know, I've never taken a fiction writing class, you know, other than little stuff in high school. I've never, you know, novels was just something I just kind of naturally came to, whereas movies is something I've trained for. So I'm so interested in screenwriting. I know nothing about it. I mean, I don't really know anything about anything when I think about it. I don't really know about writing books either, but what... <laughs> What kind of, how is it different? How is screenwriting different when you sit down at a computer to come up with a plot? I mean, how is it different from writing a novel? Well, it, it's different in this way. Um, screenwriting to me is almost akin to playing tennis. You can be a very good athlete. You can be a natural writer, um, just like, you know, natural athletes. But tennis you have to train for. It's actually, structurally mm -hmm. speaking, the most merciless art form there is. Because, you know, how many movies have you seen where, you know, you're in there for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you're, and then suddenly in the middle of the movie, you're like, what happened? And it's completely lost you. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's just you can't wander off the beaten path too much with movies. There are exceptions. Um, 
Certainly there are exceptions in European cinema um, and, uh, you know, other places. But like in terms of good old American Hollywood screenwriting, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of get to the story and be as brief as you possibly can. Wow. Yeah, I'm not brief. So because <laughs> I think well, you yeah, said then you so. found your right thing. <laughs> Right. Because also, what's what's also yeah, exactly. What's also great about about writing uh, novels, or in your case, you know, self help or whatever. What is great about writing uh, prose of any kind is that you can you can wander off the beaten path. You can take the chapter and just talk about a thematic idea. In a movie, that very rarely works. It can, but it's, yeah. it's very rare. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's that's really that's actually a great. That gives me a, a better picture that you've got to train for this. You can't just be like, hey, I'm going to be a screenwriter. That that makes a lot of sense. Well, no, it, it's not. Look, it, it, it's here's the thing about movies. You know, the art form was not around 130 years ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Didn't exist. This is all these are all like new steps. This is such a new it's like the beginning of language was, you know, however many thousands of years ago um, or the, the, the beginning of written language. We're all in baby steps. And I think sometimes we forget that because, you know, our lives move at the pace that they move in. But, but to me, it's, it's like if, if screenwriting is something that, that a member of your audience is listening to and they want to try, there, there are great guidebooks and just get in there and you try it. Yeah. You know, everybody learned how to do it. Everything you've ever d- done, you've learned how to do. Mm. I don't know that I want to learn how to do that. It seems hard. <laughs> yeah, well, then good. Listen, you found a nice... <laughs> I'll leave nice it to you, Steve. Yourself. So yeah, yeah, leave it to me. You're done. I'll adapt all your books. Yeah, Done. yeah, that's great. It's great. Okay, so let's talk about movies. Like, what would people know that you've done? Because that then people will be, oh, people you know. know. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I don't know what your introduction is that you're going to record after this. I'm not going to tell uh, anyone. Okay, okay, great. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I do that uh, all the time. Yeah. Okay, so what they, would they have known? I, If you are a fan of musicals, movie musicals, I wrote the screenplay for the musical uh, movie musical Rent. And I also co-wrote uh, with a wonderful man named Evan Spiliotopoulos uh, the screenplay for the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast, starring Emma Watson. So, so I did that screenplay as well. Um, in terms of the movies that I have either wrote, co-wrote, and directed, I adapted my first novel, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I wrote the screenplay and directed that movie, also starring Emma Watson um, and others. And I co-wrote and I directed uh, a movie called Wonder, based on R.J. Palacio's uh, incredible uh, novel. So of this good. Game. So good. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, in terms of, you know, if you're a mom, go see Wonder. <laughs> you know, and it bring is, your Kleenex. Oh, my and gosh. Kleenex, yeah, because everything I added for Julia Roberts and everything else was basically based on witnessing what my wife was going through after having children and, and how how much having kids impacted her life and also getting back to work and kind of finding her way you know, trying to balance everything. I, I love doing Wonder. Wonder was very special to me. Yeah. So how, so, yeah. how much did you adapt from the, I, I didn't read the book. My kids read the book. Um, I didn't read the book. So what was, you know, and I don't know if that's an annoying question, but I just out of curiosity, because I did love the movie so much. What did yeah, you, well, major, what did you change? Uh, not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's great is when someone, I was sitting side by side and there was this one audience that somebody said, so they asked RJ, RJ, uh, Ms. Palacio, um, what, what are you really, uh, uh, you know, bummed about that, that didn't make it into the movie that was in the book? And, and when RJ said, you know what, I actually don't know what he left out. Wow. And that was the greatest compliment in the world because there is this one story, um, 
that I won't say because it's kind of a spoiler. There's this one scene between Augie and his mom, um, you know, after something sad happens that is in the book. We did shoot it and it just didn't work in the context of the movie. Um, and so I changed it to a moment uh, between Augie and his dad instead, which I thought would much better suited uh, the film. That's it. That's the only thing I can even remember that we left out. And uh, yeah, it was just really, I don't know. It was really a very, very special, special movie to do. And it made me a better person. Just yeah. being around these kids, talking about empathy, talking about kindness, and just living that. Because you can't make a movie about kindness without doing it with kindness. And to put that standard on yourself, like, I don't care how hard the day is. I don't care how stressed you are. No one's yelling. We're not. We're going to do this with respect. It was a really great way to live, and it's and it's it stayed with me ever since. So my other question about Wonder is: Is Julia Roberts really that pretty in real life? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> she's Julia Roberts, of course. <laughs> I'm like, she can't be real. She can't be a real person. She's kind of no. Be she's a, real a total person. real person. You know what? You know what's great too. You know, in all of my of all of my days, the people I've met in Hollywood, you know, like the most famous people you can think of, um, it's the ones that have great families because she's married to Danny um, and she has three kids and it's really about her family for her. That's what that's like, you know, look, her job is her job. She loves acting. You know, she's she's an icon. I mean, for God's sakes. Right. But like really at the end of the day, she's, you know, there, you know, there's another girl from Georgia. There's a girl from Georgia yeah. who's all about her family and she's a really happy person because of it. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so let's talk about Emma Watson because she had a big impact on this most recent book for you. So your new book, Imaginary Friend, um, just came out about three weeks ago because I think it was Pub Day or close to it when we... It was, we... It was yeah, it was two days after Pub Day. Yeah, yeah. And you said you even thank her in the acknowledgments. So what was her impact on this book? Well, her impact was, you know... Uh, when we were making the Perks Me Wallflower movie, we were on a lunch break. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were on a lunch break for, um, we were shooting the Secret Santa scene. And we're just kind of hanging around the set and, and, you know, we have an hour to kill. And, and so she's like, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm writing this novel called Imaginary Friend. And I said, oh. She asked what it was. I started to, to tell her about it. I started by saying, um, you know, uh, the thing I always start with, I said, like the original idea for Imaginary Friend, I'll kind of walk you through what I told Emma. And then you'll understand her impact a little better. So I said, so Emma, when you were young, you would lay in the grass, you'd look up in the sky and you'd see the clouds, right? She says, yes. I say, and you'd see the shapes. Oh, that looks like a dog, a hammer in her face. She said, yeah. I said, well, just imagine a little child looking up in the sky and realizing for the last two weeks, it was always the same face looking back at him. She's like, ooh. I go, yeah. Imagine he's outside of his school and he's reading his book and the last of the school buses goes away. And the shadow cuts across the page, and he looks up, and there's the face. Now it's as big as the sky. And Christopher, the little boy, is all alone. He says, hello, can you hear me? And there's a thunderclap that could be a coincidence. So he says, if you can hear me, blink your left eye. And slowly the cloud face blinks its left eye, unblinks, and then starts to float away. So I'm saying this story, and I, I take her to the next beat and the next beat and everything else, and she's on the edge of her seat. You know, in, in terms of like, you know, all the heart and all the horror, because I wanted to write a book that mixed heart and horror. So that's what I was telling her. And she was on the edge of her seat. And then I get to the ending and I kind of almost do a jazz hands. Run over. <laughs> and then this happens. And she goes, huh. <laughs> and you have to understand to have Emma Watson on the edge of her seat to go from that to, huh. I go, what? No good. She's like, huh. 
And she's <laughs> far too polite and British to ever tell you that what you wrote is terrible. You know what I mean? Um, but I knew from just her expression, I was like, huh. I think I, because I, I, I had, I, she was on the edge of her seat. Because the drop off was so hard, I knew I did something wrong. So I had to go back and kind of like do a little bit of an autopsy. And then, and then I came up with a new ending, which by the way, she loved. So uh, she impacted in a very, very positive way. An autopsy. That's funny. How did you learn to take that kind of criticism and put aside the ego and, and really take that, huh, as, uh, and, and do something about it? Because I think that that's a hard, I don't know, is that a life lesson or is that something you've always been good at kind of adapting? Well, I, I'm good at it. I, I, I'm good at it out of practice. When I was younger, maybe I didn't listen as much. And what I realized, especially after, especially after I did Wonder, what I realized that most of the successes that I've ever had in my career came from listening more than talking, mm-hmm. you know, being respectful of, you know, and I'm really lucky. I'm, I'm surrounded by some wonderfully talented people who have great insights. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where if, if, you know, five out of six people tell you, hey, I'm a little confused here, well, then it's confusing. It's not that they're like, you know, oh, you just don't get it. But I want them to get it. I don't want them to get it because I'm, I don't know, so I'm not like pandering to an audience or something like that. No. It's everything I've done in my entire career, you know, from Perks to Wonder to Beating the Beast and now Imaginary Friend, everything I've done, I want to bring people together. I want to show what we have in common far more than what I, I, I want to show our, our, our differences. I think we have too much of that as, as it is. So for me, taking in honest criticism and, and with knowing – that the people that I'm taking it from are on my side and they want me to do well. Yeah. You know, these are not frenemies. These are not backstabbers. We all have those people in our lives. Um, these are the, these are the people that are on my side. And when someone on my side says, Hey, I think that you missed the boat here. Well, I take it very, very seriously. Right. And you have to have a pretty small circle to really trust people. Don't you? I mean, you have a huge network, I'm sure like just being in Hollywood as long as you have, but do you keep your, the people that can tell you those things, do you keep that circle pretty small or not? Well, it's not that I, it's not that I keep it small. It's just, you know, the, my closest friends, my closest friends kind of remain my closest friends. And yeah. with that, with every movie I do, I've been lucky. I've been able to add like one or two really special people to that group. And, and if I feel like they're going to have insight into this, I'll, I'll share something with them or I'll, or I'll talk about certain things or pitch out certain things. Sure. Yeah. You know, but, but, but it's not, you know, I'm not doing, it's not like focus groups. I'm not doing a big focus group. <laughs> it's more of, it's more of, Hey, you know, here's the story. I want to tell you the story. And if, if I lose them or if I feel them, you know, shifting in their chair, I'll make adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. So your new book, Imaginary Friend, this was 20 years after Perks of Being a Wallflower. And I have such a trouble, such trouble with the title of Perks. I always want to say Wildflower. <laughs> Even sure. though I know wallflower. So if I hey, say wallflower. Being. Most people do you know, it's so funny. Like, oh, my God, perks of a wallflower. And I say, uh, it's being, but that's okay. Like, it's fine with me. Look, if you're going to say wallflower or wildflower, you know. Shabosky, Shabosky. Exactly. Yeah. With, with my last name, it's really hard for me to ever get upset. <laughs> I'm just glad I'm not in kindergarten anymore. I'm like, Steve Chibisky. Right. And, and, yeah. I'm out of those days. I'm fine. You're Call fine. it what you want. That's fine. Yes. But, you yes, know, it has been 20 years since the perks of being a yeah, wallflower. 20, 20 years, which I think I definitely want to come back to that. But it's so interesting to hold these two books side by side. Perks is a novella, I guess. I mean, I don't even know if you call it that, but it's a smaller book. And then Imaginary mm-hmm. Friend is a 
largest book and there's 20 years in between. So obviously you've had a very busy career in those 20 years, but did you know you would come back to writing a novel and how did you choose the genre you did? Well, I, I always hoped that I would come back to writing a novel. I wasn't sure, you know, I mean, you know, the advice that my dad gave me ran pretty deep where I just considered myself a quote, a movie guy, unquote. And that the perks of being a wallflower I felt was written, you know, cause it's first person. I felt like it was almost like a 213 page monologue, which, which fit very well with my screen, my screenwriting uh, career. Mm. Um, and so I never thought about it. I was like, Oh, maybe it's a fluke. Maybe it's a one-off. I don't know. I'm glad that people have loved it and I'm glad that it's helped people. That part's great. Um, but when I actually did the adaptation of perks and I read so I was going to do the movie of it and I read the book all over again with, you know, more of adult eyes, I guess, is is uh, it struck me. I was like, wow, this is actually this is a real book. And and I don't know why I've, I've limited myself to thinking that I'm a quote movie guy. Well, maybe I can do other things. And so knowing that it had been 20 years, um, this is about 10 years ago when I started thinking about this, knowing that, uh, you know, it had been a long time since I published a book. And knowing that just based on time, I wouldn't be able to write like, you know, I can't write a book a year. I have too many other things that I'm doing. I was like, well, then I want to, you know, which one would I regret not writing, you know? And imaginary friend from that first idea about the clouds and all the themes that it became, that it, that it woke up in me, it became a fiercely personal book, actually. Mm. And, and it's not that I chose horror. I don't even consider it a horror book, not, not first and foremost, because my wife, Liz, she doesn't like horror at all. But she loves imaginary friend. And I what I wanted to do was I wanted to take the same kind of coming of age as the Perks of Being Wallflower, the same respectful treatment of of what young people go through as perks and wonder, and just take, I guess, the thematics where Charlie, you know, Charlie has so much empathy and, and wonder has so much empathy and say, Okay, what if empathy was almost supernatural? Mm-hmm. What if your ability to to recognize what people are going through. What if it was something extra, something otherworldly? So I started to examine that. I also started to examine mental illness in a different way. It's something I touched on very much in Perks Being a Wallflower. You know, Charlie struggles with it. His aunt struggles with it, other things. And I thought about, I thought about, you know, what if all those negative voices in your head, you know, which we all struggle with, you know, the one that says, oh, you're not thin enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. It's like, what if they weren't you, you know? What if it was something either from your past, which we can all acknowledge, maybe it is still us, or maybe it's a script we keep rolling out, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something on the other side of the glass, and, and that person or that entity has a great vested interest in you not believing in yourself, right? So I started ex- examining it that way. Not to downplay mental illness by, by any stretch of the imagination, or downplay those negative voices that we all struggle with, but just to call attention to them and make people look at them in a different way. One of my favorite parts of the book that I wrote was was Kate Reese, the mom, Christopher's mother, um, who's uh, one of my favorite characters I've ever written. When she was thinking back to her late husband who passed away very tragically, and he's a man that struggled with mental illness. And when he said this this little joke right before he died, he says, hey, Kate, what are the two types of people who see things that aren't there? And then his little whisper of a punchline, visionaries and psychopaths. Hmm. And I, I loved exploring yes. things that way because – by, by looking at questions this way, it, I just want people to like, it, to me it's like a Rorschach test. Here it is, I'm posing this. 
make up your own conclusions, make up your own answers, but I'm going to ask the questions in this different way. And it's been very, very fun, very gratifying that all the Perks fans who've read Imaginary Friend, you know, look, there's some people that just, they don't ever want to have one moment of scare and that's fine. <laughs> but people have really, really loved it. And it means the world to me that they have. Yeah, that that's so awesome. And you are ahead of your time. I mean, you are ahead of the talk of, about mental illness and, and really speaking out. I mean, 20 years ago with Perks, it, people were not talking about it like they are now. And we're not talking about emotions and um, suicide. And, and that was why I think like Perks was so impactful. I mean, one of the reasons, of course, but I mean, it's just amazing that 20 years later, it still has the impact. It's it's just an incredible book. So and I and I remember the first time I read it, and so I I thank you for that. I'm still working on Imaginary Friend. It's a big book. <laughs> it's a big book. That's totally fine. And listen, but, if you commute a lot, you can listen to Christine Lakin's amazing reading of it. I know. I'm. Th- I yeah. didn't even. It didn't even occur to me because well, because I bought the book and had you sign it, and then I went to the reading. And I got another yeah. copy to give a friend. But um, uh, yeah. I think when you get to the end of Imaginary Friend, you're going to see the correlations to Perks very directly. Yes. Most yes. people have, and they, they say, oh, it's another story about that. And I go, yes, it's another story about that. Yeah. And this one is just, it's, I'm using genre and, and, and certain types of language in a way um, where, you know, and you've probably seen already some of the, some of the there's, it's written from a very childlike point of view, right. where the sheriff is always called the sheriff, and Mrs. Henderson, the librarian, is always Mrs. Henderson. Mrs. Henderson Kids yeah. do that. Yes, or there's certain moments of repetition, and the reason why is because that is how children learn fairy tales. That's how we learn Grimm. And, you know, when Christopher goes into the woods with his, uh, you know, his little red hoodie, well, you know, it's not a big stretch uh, to realize that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to Little Red Riding Hood. Right. And same thing with some of the, some of the religious themes that I, I was, um, you know, digging into, certainly at the beginning. I was raised Catholic, and, uh, you know, and a lot of those stories stuck with me. And I thought about it in terms of, you know, mixing all these things together. Like, here are these incredible storytelling uh, traditions that we were always raised with. How are we raised with them? And it was great fun to kind of put it all together in one form uh, in this book, Imaginary Friend. I had a great time writing awesome. it. So at your reading, you, you had, well, when I saw you at the bookstore, you said, well, you're going to come to my reading tonight. And I said, well, I, I didn't even think about it. I was heading back home. And so I had to call my husband and try and get, you know, make sure he was home to retrieve the kids and all that. Because you said, you told me in the bookstore that you wrote, um, in, in the 20th anniversary edition of Perks, a new letter from Charlie. And I was like, well, I have to go hear this. <laughs> I just have to go. And you said, you're going to really love it. And I was like, okay. And I did in fact, really love it. You got a little tear out of me and I don't want any, you know, I don't want you to spoil it, but tell me a little bit about how you wrote the final letter or the new letter from Charlie. The, the new letter. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, when, when my publisher said, Hey, it's the 20th anniversary. Do you want to do something? And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I would love to. And I didn't want to just slap a sticker on it and call it something new when it wasn't new. Uh, sometimes that happens or throw in some other supplementary material. I realized I had a really rare position after 20 years to be able to write another letter um, from Charlie now as a 36 year old man, you know, a 16 year old ended, you know, that final letter that ends with the line, and I will believe the same about you, love always, Charlie. It's been that for 20 years. And I thought, how great would it be for the next generation of people that find the book? Or maybe for people that love Perks, you know, love their old version and want to just hear about Charlie 20 years later. 
to be able to like write an afterward they, that the people get to turn the page, say, dear friend, I haven't sent a letter to you for over 20 years. And here are all the things that I've learned. You know, it was, it was really, it was very cathartic for me to write it because in a lot of ways it made me realize how much I'd been able to heal my own life. Mm. Now, uh, when I wrote the book, you know, I wasn't married. I had no children. I, you know, I was struggling with a lot of the same issues that Charlie was and that some of his friends were. And, uh, you know, for me, writing perks and, and meeting people over the years was part of the, the process of healing. And I was able to do it. So to be able to say to the next generation of readers, basically, hey, you are not alone and it does get better. And here is proof. And I mean, what a remarkable position to be in. I was so grateful and very humbled to be able to do it and just just write it. And, and so far, people have just loved it. It's been a real, you know, it's uh, and we had we didn't do a big advertising thing. It wasn't like a big you know, we were making a big fuss or big to do. I'm not. You know, I was like, people are going to discover it just like they discovered the book itself 20 years ago. Right. And when I sat there while you read it, I thought that was the same thing I thought, because when I read Perks, I was probably maybe 20 because I don't think I read it right away. But, I, you know, mm -hmm. I'm almost 40. And um, yeah, I thought the same thing. I mean, it just it felt like how much I had healed from the 19 year old version of myself till now. And yes. that's when it got me in the, in the throat. And, uh, yeah, because yeah. you made it. And that's yes. the whole point. Yes. And to say that an ex 14 year old, listen, right. you, it will not feel like this right now. You are going to make it too. That's the whole point. That's all we can do. It's like, if you struggle with things, if you've gone through things, if you've survived things or know or love people that have mental, whatever, any kind of abuse, we all know people. Sometimes they're there. It's us, you know, or sometimes it's someone that we love. But the point is, we can be there for each other. We can help each other. We can heal each other. And we can build great lives. And, and that's the thing. There's one line I wrote in the new letter I'm very proud of, which is, you know, um, we all get an ending. Whether or not it's happy is up to us. And I truly believe that with all of my heart. Yeah. Speaking of endings that are happy, let's talk about um, fatherhood <laughs> and children. Great. What have you learned from your children? Because I learn something every day from mine. Mine are almost, almost 11 and almost 12. And man, it is nothing like kids to wake you up, right? Yeah. Well, what I've learned from my children is that I don't need more than five hours of sleep a day. So that right. I didn't know that before. So good. <laughs> God bless them for that one. You don't um, need clean clothes because they'll just destroy them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, what's the point? Um, you know, I don't need a clean house or no, <clears throat> I'm kidding. What I've learned from them is, you know, there's, there's something I said earlier about how everything that we have learned to everything that we do we have learned to do and to see my children you start out and we all remember like they're almost the size of your hand or the you know and i could hold my my daughter and my son you know where their head went in my hand and their legs draped over like my forearm and 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 they and their legs like started at my elbow right to here's macy and she's seven and she's reading and she's going to first grade and she's having this wonderful time and she's making friends and she's f navigating the world to go from a person that could not move to a person that crawls, to a person that walks, to a person that talks, to a person that runs. You know, it's remarkable to even see the effort. And we forget as adults that sometimes things take time. You know, it's not, it's not like you look at a kid and the kid tries to walk and they hobble on their legs and they fall over. It's not like, well, 
I guess I gave that a shot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's not how it works. They keep trying. They don't need a pep talk to keep trying to grow and to do what their body has been designed or their spirit has been designed to do. You know, and on the, look, some kids struggle with that. Some kids don't. But watching both of my children learn to do things that they couldn't do yesterday. And sometimes, let's say I'm on the road. You know, if I'm on the road, um, like, you know, like the, on this book tour right now, um, I'll come back and like, oh, wow. And the growth is you're gone a week. Right. And they're, they're like different people. It's remarkable. And it just puts into perspective how we're always growing, no matter no matter what your age is. You know, things may not be as new. They may not feel like the first time. And sometimes that, you know, sometimes that can feel like a bummer. But really, if you let it in to have that sense of certainty or have that sense of confidence and that we can be their rocks, right? you know, um, it's, it's, it's nothing but a blessing. I love my kids. And, yeah. and I have the greatest time uh, raising them. And I love my wife. And, you know, look, when I met Liz when I was 37, everything kind of got great. And I'm so grateful for all the time. So, yeah, I've, it's almost like what I have and I learned would be my real answer to your question. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, what what have you What do you wish you would have known when you wrote Perks and, and what you know now? Like, what do you wish you could have told yourself then? But I, I think you you, <laughs> you know, probably only, answered it. <laughs> the only thing the only thing that I I only have, you know, I have two regrets in life, um, you know, and I don't dwell on them. I met Liz at 37. I really wish I would have met her when I was much, 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 much younger because, uh, you know, I don't, you know, for me, it's everything got great. And so there's that. And, but in terms of like what, you know, if I had a time machine, I'd probably go back to 1999 when the person being wallflower was published. And I would say, Hey, listen, I know you're going to be tempted to rewrite a lot of movies for Hollywood. I'm begging you. Don't do it. You're actually, <laughs> you're actually good at writing novels and you should keep doing it. And I know that you think it's a fluke or it's a one-off or it's this or it's that. It's not. And and this whole idea of being a movie guy is actually – it's just a belief that for some reason it's almost like that voice you know, in your head that says you're, you're, you know, you're not thin enough. You're not this. You're not that. It's actually – it's not true. But you believe it is true, so it's true. And so that's, that's it. I, I would have probably been on book five by now. Yeah. I, you know? I mean I had a similar journey. Um, it wasn't – I wasn't 12. I was 18 going into college and I was going to be a journalist. I was going to be a writer. I was going to write books and also be a reporter. I was just, if it needed writing, I was going to write it. And someone said, you know, you're going to be dirt poor if you're a writer. And that may or may not matter to some people, but it mattered to me because I grew up um, with a dad who was self-employed. And so I always was scared of the self-employed and, and being poor because it was, it was a hard, it was hard to watch. It was hard to watch. Yes a self-employed man, blue collar. And I, it just struck me in my fear set. And so I thought, well, I can't be dirt poor. I, I can't, that's terrifying. I'm going to go to law school. And so I took a hard right and went to law school and spent 15 years doing something that was based in fear. And and so I know what you mean. I mean, it, you were screenwriting and I'm sure that wasn't all that bad. I was being a lawyer. It wasn't all that bad. But right. until I made the choice to come back to what was home, and what was what I originally wanted to do, I always felt like I was in this state of conflict. Yes. And so I get and that, that. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. Because, again, if your dream is to be a lawyer, and, you know, there have been some incredible ones like that, that's, you know, you know, I, I'm glad that Ruth, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't, right. like, choose, uh, you know, writing writer. children's <laughs> books. Yeah, it's like, you know, 
that if that's your passion, that's your passion. It, it's it's just when when you're spending all of your time not doing your passion, you know, um, and and that disconnect. I agree. You know, I'm much happier now now that I'm directing movies and now that I'm writing novels again. I feel much more fulfilled, and it makes me a better dad. And it makes me a better husband because I'm more me. Yeah. You know, it's 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 so you know, but you know, again, uh, that's the great thing about life. You 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 grow, you learn, and just like just like people that you know, watching our kids, you know, walk, stand on those legs for the first time and hobble a little bit and then fall, they get up and they get up and they get up because eventually, I think we're just meant to move. We're meant to grow. So last question, what is something that you do on a daily basis, like kind of a Stephen Shabosky life hack, um, something that you do to make your 24 hours great every single day? Something, wow, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> does coffee count? Can I yeah, say coffee? Yeah, it totally does because I believe Yeah, well, it's, it's hard to like, you know, pass off coffee as my life hack. So it's okay because it, it's mine. I mean, yeah, I can't really, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what I think it is? It's this, I... My my life hack is, um, I'm I I was actually kind of a good math student, believe it or not. That was actually my best subject in school. I was a writer, but like you know, I was a slow reader, as I said. So, but math was always very clear for me. And so, my life hack is is I heard a great uh, kind of a self helpy thing a long time ago, where most people they do changes, and they and they 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 do like New Year's resolutions, right? We all do them, and we we stack it, and then. And then we, we get down on ourselves, like, you know, that we didn't achieve them all that year or whatever. And anyway, the, the saying that I heard was, um, the saying I heard was, uh, you know, people completely overestimate what they can do in a year. But ironically, they completely underestimate what they can do in five, right? And so what I do is I look, my life hack is I think about, hey, look, you have so many years, you can break it down. And so... Try to, you know, if, you, if you're driving and you can't read the book, listen to it. Like if there's something that you, you don't want to die having not done, whether it's go to this place or read that book or, you know, reach out and make, you know, bury the hatchet with that old friend or whatever it is that you need to do is just to like to try to the best of your ability to realize that we do have a, you know, that our really precious commodity is time. It is finite. And, and that's not something to be sad about. It's something to embrace and realize that this is your chance and go and do it. You know, if that's my life hack and, and I look at it as more like a day in day out thing. It's like, listen, I just, yesterday I was awake for 21 hours. I traveled from Paris to London here to Calgary. Okay. That's why my voice is so like roughed up right now. And I'm really tired and my body is killing me and I'm achy as, as, as all get out. But I remember bumping into you in Boston and I'm really excited to talk to you. So my life hack is, if you're doing the thing, try to enjoy it because it was great talking to you. I learned a lot and I had a great time. It's like, and that gives me, makes me happy. It's like, I heard a long time ago that you feel wealth, you know, not from what you have, you know, but what you're, what you appreciate basically. You know, I know, I know people with millions of dollars that feel panic and I know people with not, without a, not a lot of money that feel great. It's like, whatever it is, it's like gratitude is a practice. I would say that, you know what? I'll boil it down. Simple gratitude. Gratitude yeah. for what you have. And if it's not satisfying, gratitude for the ability to change to get it. Yes. Gratitude is yes. my life. That's awesome. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. 
Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.